0: This is writer and game designer, Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer, Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we here to talk about in this episode include... Dreamhounds Go Delta Green. Surviving the Revision Phase. Marianne Williamson. And the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. And of course that is true of beloved Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff listeners, but what I'm talking about here are your stats in Magical Kitties Save the Day from our friends at Atlas Games. Magical Kitties Save the Day is a role-playing game for players of all ages. Play as a cat with magical powers. Save your human from corrupted robots, evil witches, money problems, and more. Even young children can learn to GM and run the game for their friends. A solo play option is available, too, for loner kitties. Magical Kitties Save the Day is kickstarting as of July 16th. You can learn more at atlas-games.com slash magicalkitties. Or follow the link in the show notes.
1: Before we begin the proceedings, uh, a shout out to friend of the podcast, brilliant game designer and delightful human being, Alex Roberts, who was uh, hit by a car and is recovering. We certainly hope that this removed nicely in the arms of her family and the magic beaver of Canada's healthcare system. Yes. Oh, Canada. Indeed. 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 So uh, fist bumps, shout outs, high fives, warm fuzzies. Peonies. Do they have yes. peonies in Canada, Robin? Are they uh, they, they grow that for? All hail her powerful helmet. All hail for her powerful helmet. Protect Alex Roberts at all costs. This is a order only to the sleeper. Only those of you who have backed at sleeper level. Protect Alex Roberts at all costs. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut. And in the gaming hut. Man, it looks like a gaming hut from long time ago, because that was not Peter Frampton. That was Peter Frampton with the head of a soup can, and there's uh lots of stolen comic art lying around, and not the regular kind that you just downloaded from Comicsology on your brother's account. It's Roy Lichtenstein being piled up in the corner because he's making room for cool surrealists, some of whom are still alive, in the swinging 1960s. Even the shag carpet is new again, Robin, because we're talking... Dreamhounds in Fall of Delta Green riffing or expanding or reiterating, I don't know what we're doing, it's your verb, right. on a series of Page XX articles that you have published on just this topic. So... Uh, won't you offer us some uh, shroom-laced tea and welcome us in? Right.
0: So uh, you and I both worked on uh, Dreamhounds of Paris, and uh, That's so nice fall of you to of say. Delta Green is your baby, <laughs> so I thought it would be fun to uh, take the basic ideas laid out in these pieces, which you can uh, find on um, the Pellegrin Paris site, or uh, by clicking the links in the show notes and uh, sort of expand them a bit and talk about some stuff that I didn't. Uh, quite have room for. So, uh while I was uh working on uh Dream Hands and researching the surrealists of 20s and 30s uh Paris, who if you're not familiar with that book, uh discover that uh through their art they have the ability to transform the dreamlands just as the uh symbolists and decadents did before them in the 1890s. And so, uh they start applying their uh decision to uh create a a radical uh, change in human consciousness through their art and through their exploration of uh, dreams and uh, uh, seances and other such uh, abilities. They're uh, using all of these uh, in uh, the service of André Breton's uh, very unconventional uh, version of uh, Trotskyite communism. And uh, they are uh, trying to change the world, but the uh, war... Basically brings that to a close and uh, most of the surrealists then have to uh, decamp uh, for the uh, safety of the United States where they're not all necessarily uh, particularly welcomed either. And uh, there's uh, in particular, there's a, a Leonora Carrington painting of her then Bo Max Ernst standing in a weird, fuzzy outfit against a a vast glacial expanse. And it occurred to me that this must be what happens to the dreamlands when all of the people who've been busy reshaping it all suddenly have to leave in a state of terror. And the book kind of assumes that you're going to wrap up the campaign, uh, if not long before then, at least when everybody uh, leaves uh, in the wake of the oncoming uh, Nazi Nazi onslaught. The... Thought though that the dreamlands are still there, but kind of frozen over, also created a series of uh, images for me that I that were beyond the purview of, of play. Uh, for example, it, it, the surrealist who remained in Paris, uh, most notably uh, Robert Desnos, worked for the resistance, and uh, in fact, he wound up uh, dying in a, a Nazi camp. Um, and so, my thought was that the uh, the, re- the re- remaining uh, surrealist, mostly French poets, uh, used the frozen over dreamlands as this place they could still travel to and hide out and, and, uh, you know, stash supplies and so forth. And, uh, this is where then the idea of American intelligence involvement in the world of art comes into it. And after the war, uh, there's a period where art is dominated by abstract expressionism. That's your Jackson Pollock's and, uh, uh, your Barnett Newmans and your Mark Rothkos, where the sort of storytelling and myth and psychology of the Surrealists is sort of swept aside as uh, mere uh, garbage and detritus, and it's decorative. Uh, it was, it's worse; it, it it has an obvious point right, to it. Fact, yeah. It has manifestos attached to it, and it's not about the turmoil of the inner self. So, uh, the critics who uh, in America, when uh, the, the war basically takes. Paris as the world headquarters of art and moves it to New York. And when it moves to New York, uh, the critic Clement Greenberg, among others, create the anti-mythology of the anti-pictorial abstract expressionists. And they tell a story of rugged individualism of Pollock and Rothko and various degrees, uh, overcoming, uh, their inner turmoil and achieving their myth through paintings that don't resemble anything, that are just, uh, they are express emotions while being entirely abstract, uh, hence the term. And here's where something uh, particularly interesting that I didn't cover in the articles comes in, in that the CIA famously <laughs> decided to combat communism in the late 40s and early 50s by supporting American modern art, particularly abstract expressionism. Uh, I guess because it was an expression of rugged individualism and a, therefore a slap in the face of the uh, socialist realism and, uh, and pedantry of, of, uh, Soviet art and,
1: uh, interesting. And and there's nothing less likes, uh, socialist realism than Jackson Pollock. Uh, Yes, that's absolutely true. If you, if you literally hired a guy right out of art school and said, paint the opposite of socialist realism, you get Pollock, right? Right. And I guess to an extent you got Kandinsky, which is why he's seen as the sort of, He's read into the movement as the forefather of the of abstract expressionism, anyway, and it's why he had to stay away from the Soviet Union.
0: Right, and so it seems like an an unlikely mix, though, of of this uh, sort of radical modernism that obliterates everything that uh, traditional people like about art, uh, and I can imagine a lot of very culturally conservative people uh, looking at Pollock. And uh, a Newman then, as they still do now, and go, that that's mm-hmm. not art. My child could do that. That's my, garbage. My kid could do that. But the CIA had
1: different thoughts. Well, the CIA was Yalies, Robin. They're not culturally conservative. Whatever else is wrong yes. with
0: um, <laughs> Well, all, well but, but bad but it course, being bad at the
1: CIA is enough to be wrong with, surely. Uh,
0: you were talking mere logical reality now, Ken. And yeah. frankly, I don't know who I'm, who I'm speaking to. Uh, because, as <laughs> the writer Gary Indiana uh, notes in his sort of history of the uh, development away from abstract expressionism into pop art, that the Museum of Modern Art was stacked, uh, their board was full of CIA and uh, national intelligence uh, folks. Now, that seems weird to us until you realize that, well, what are they trying to do? They're trying to keep the dreamland shut down because it's a big ass security risk. right? And uh, they don't want it to flower back up. They don't want American uh, artists who of course are all known to be uh, unreliable weirdos uh, to start reshaping the dreamlands or in fact the still living surrealists who are scattered across america dali has gone to the right he's a uh, on side with uh with franco back home and a advocate of democracy when he's in uh, america at the saint regis hotel in new york which is mm-hmm. most of his time but the other surrealists are all uh weird uh subversive foreigners you don't want to let them back loose and give them the ability to start drawing all these uh weird powers from the dreamlands and the uh, manifesting uh moon beasts and so forth so uh in the timeline of delta green uh where is the uh what is the uh, delta green uh continuity uh connection to the CIA's lockdown of the dreamlands in the fifties and the early sixties.
1: I I suspect that Delta green is what impels that because it's Delta green. That's going to have discovered that the dreamlands exist. That's, you know, the assumption and that they will have stumbled on it through investigating the paintings, not just of uh Pikmin, but also of Robert Blake, the painter who disappears at the end of Haunter of the dark, leaving, uh, portals to another world just scattered around his apartment. At some point Delta green does the post operation cleanup on that probably a decade or two too late, but they, but they do it. They discover the dreamlands exist. They, they have the writings of Randolph Carter who in Delta green continuity was a, as in Lovecraft was a horror writer who vanished mysteriously in 1928. And um so they, they can piece together the notion that uh this stuff might be real one of them will stumble into the dreamlands probably uh during the uh, psychedelic experiments that are the precursor even to MKUltra um and they're like oh my god this is this is bad we have to keep this shut down and they start uh working with uh the CIA sort of establishing that and doing the thing that the Delta Green does where they set up a plausible reason to do something, and then they roll it forward and let the the bureaucracy just do their uh, what they want done. So if Delta Green wants the CIA to back abstract expressionism, they put a bug in the ear of a couple of uh, high-up CIA guys on the Delta Green XCOM, and then those guys uh, turn around and make it happen with the argument, oh, this will combat communism. This will show those socialist, realist, tractor-painting goons what America is really about. And whether or not Greenberg was a Delta Green asset when he wrote that essay, or whether that was just a inspired bit of post hoc myth making of the sort that art criticism is known for, who can say? I guess it's up to you. But Delta Green would have stumbled on the Dreamlands in the very early, like Project Artichoke experiments of the forties, and discovered, oh my god! And this ties in with all the Pickman and Carter and uh, Blake stuff that we've been looking at. We need to uh, have an all hands and, and shut this thing down.
0: Now, of course, the, the thing about uh, both. Uh, intelligence operations and art history movements is they don't last forever. And so for every reaction, there's a a counter-reaction. And in the 60s, a new brand of uh, people who are uh, just personally as well as culturally styled against the abstract expressionists, particularly the abstract expressionists are famous hard-drinking, womanizing, heterosexual alpha dudes Mm -hmm. and a... A new group of artists, many of whom are either, uh, openly, uh, gay, like Andy Warhol, or, uh, less so, like, uh, Jasper Johns and, uh, uh Robert Ruschenberg, who, uh, don't like Warhol because he's given the game away. <laughs> but nonetheless, they all start putting actual content uh, in their uh, works and drawing back on mythology and weird collages and bringing back the spirit of Max Ernst particularly, but uh, with them, the other Surrealists and the Surrealists have been out of fashion. Uh, but when the uh, 60s counterculture comes along, uh, guess what? This is when their global reputations really start to take off, that uh, uh, Dali has always been more of a celebrity than everybody else, but they all begin to uh, get uh, a reputational boosts, and uh, the delta green agents when they start seeing soup cans and uh roy lichtenstein electroset dot patterns and uh you know their uh sideways helicopters and uh a, a weird uh other uh you know phantom ass comes back to life again from the posters and so is, so are other cartoon characters uh, screaming across the dreamlands then they're going to have to go and talk to the Surrealists and find out what the heck is going on. Because, of course, the problem with aligning themselves uh, with uh, the abstract expressionists is they don't know anything about the Dreamlands. They've just been unknowingly keeping it shut down. And in the 60s, uh, a lot of the key figures who you might have played as player characters in Dreamhounds are still alive for your new Delta Green PCs to go and interrogate. And so uh, now many of them actually died during the 60s, so you have to... Catch him at the right time. Mm-hmm. So uh, Jean Cocteau, for example, you gotta get him early in your campaign. He dies in nineteen sixty three. Or does he? Because of course any of these figures could be. Well not I mean Cocteau,
1: be- of course, you uh, in in the Dreamhounds mythology, he's very, very ghoul friendly. So yeah. if he dies, maybe he just quote unquote dies like pickman and becomes a ghoul and is hanging out in a, a swanky black and white uh, artsy part of uh, the Vale of panath right he,
0: he made a whole bunch of movies about orpheus mm-hmm. so i think he knows you think he's,
1: you think he's uh, savvy <laughs> how,
0: to, how to go to the underworld uh-huh. or louis bunuel who just uh after decades of toiling in relative obscurity becomes an international figure of cinema during the 60s well his his memory is famously bad. Oddly enough, I don't know if his journey to the Dreamlands had anything to do with that. But you may have to, you know, use your Tilling gas generator or some uh, black lotus powder or what have you to uh, uh, stimulate his memory again. So uh, there's all sorts of characters that, that you can go back to as Delta Green uh, agents and sort of uh, have the fun, uh, almost sort of Yellow King uh, RPG-like experience of interacting with and connecting up to a. Uh, a previous, uh, uh campaign and, and th- that fun sort of callback moment where, oh my gosh, our contact is Picasso. Oh well, what do we? I I played Picasso back I wonder if he's going to be as big a a dick to me as I was to the NPCs when I played Picasso.
1: Oh, goodness.
0: Um, So are there particular uh, plot hooks that I left fallow that you would like to grab onto?
1: Well, I mean, I think one of the things that is going to happen much more in the 60s than it did in the 20s and 30s is the connection of film and surrealism, because this is when you begin to develop the new wave and it starts to... Not just, uh, the sort of intense emotional aspect of the new wave, but also the sort of image for image's sake, uh, art film begins to blend in with more narrative film. That's of course classically, I think most prominent in blow up, but it's in a whole ton of other movies, uh, where you have, uh, surrealist breaks. Uh, the Beatles, for example, when they do, uh, help and yellow submarine, those are both very psychedelic, but also very surrealist films. And that notion, of using film as an entry and a way into the dreamlands. I mean, if you think that Delta green was losing it at the notion that someone after uh, four uh, months could alter the dreamlands with a canvas and maybe let them and a couple of white wine sipping uh aesthetes into the dreamlands. Imagine their notion that the Beatles are unwittingly, or are they unwittingly, opening doors into the Dreamlands. And then when they go to India to study with uh the Maharaji Mahesh, you know, are they imbibing uh the wisdom of Swami Chandraputra, the mysterious uh cloaked figure that was seen after the death of Randolph Carter? What's going on? Um I I think it'd be fun to sort of Toss them into that notion of, of the new swing in Hollywood as uh, the studio system is breaking down and all the old anti-communist controls that were on production there that are also, of course, masks for anti-mythos controls are breaking down and, and, uh, independent filmmakers are doing independent things, uh, often at a great cost to life and limb. Yes. You can sneak Kenneth Anger in there if you want. Yeah. That's right. He was at the, uh, uh attempt to exercise the Pentagon doing magic underneath a truck. And he snarled like a snake when someone uh, asked him what was going on that's that's legitimate. Yeah. In my fall of Delta Green game he was stabbed and uh, <laughs> and rightly so
0: yes uh, so uh, I think that gives you a really opening up the dreamlands to being affected by art culture and by art culture's influence on pop culture is uh, I think a really fun element and uh, you can literally have your uh, agents uh, fall. Uh, into the dreamlands, into uh, a scene from Yellow Submarine, or, you know, they find themselves in the middle of some other Peter Max uh, drawing, or right. they have to figure out the arcane significance of all of those figures on the... On the uh people we uh, like cover. S- Sergeant Pepper's album. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe, you know, th- their assignment is to go to make sure that, famously, there was a, a standee of Hitler that was going to be in the shot, and it was taken out. Uh, but cooler heads prevailed. And you know. um, perhaps you, the agents, are the cooler heads who... uh uh, prevent uh, that uh, icon of malice and genocide from being uh, broadcast back into the world. Because we all know that... Via sex you know, Hitler. Even from the... Yeah, even in the 30s, sex Hitler is a big problem in the dreamlands. Um, so this uh, episode actually is dropping uh during Gen Con. So if you happen to be listening to this uh, while you jostle for your fake eggs at the uh, buffet uh, and uh, want to head over to the hall and you haven't picked up uh, either uh, Dreamhands of Paris or uh, Fall of Delta Green, uh, you can uh, uh, head right on over and uh, by the by the miracle of uh, pre-recording, uh, Ken and I will likely be there, ready to sign your copies for you. What fun! Uh, and on that note of both uh, largesse and commercial cravenness, I think it's time for us to head on over to our next segment.
1: In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia.
0: Yeah, but there's more to that story.
1: In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh, boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world, world of the cthulhu mythos
0: a government program named majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural a government program named delta green tries to destroy
1: the unnatural in the fall of delta green you play the agents of delta green caught between your oath to america and your duty to humanity Caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions.
0: Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green
1: adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction.
0: Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls
1: shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website.
0: It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s, in gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world?
1: The chudder of IBM's electric keys, the gurgle of mid-priced bourbon into the jelly jar, welcomes once more to the place where our only mission is to learn how to write good. And today... Know, actually that was that was kind of good I don't need to go back and revise I feel pretty good about that Robin um, what do you think
0: I think the secret the, the terrible secret of writing good is that the thing that makes you writing good is revision Boo. and particularly when you are um, beginning uh, as a writer and, and mastering style uh, the revision phase is where you teach yourself to write the first yeah. draft uh, I uh, recommend that whenever possible you try to avoid your uh, being uh, caught up in stylistic knots, if there's a paragraph or a passage that's uh, uh, given you trouble and just won't yield, uh, just uh, kind of maybe highlight it on, on your uh, document or, or whatever it is and, and know that you're going to have to tackle it later. But there's a definite mental switch between the flow state of creating and expressing your thoughts and getting them down on paper, and then the horrible revision phase where the the logical brain has to take over and make sure that you said what you wanted to say in the clearest, most elegant, and most concise and succinct way. And both forms of writing are very t- tiring. Of course, the number one piece of advice that uh, you and I always have about writing, Ken, is if you can do something else, do that instead. Yes,
1: <laughs> it's um a uh, uh, Jackway's uh, corollary to Asimov's law. Keep your day job is Asimov's law. And at uh, Jackway's coral areas, or for God's sake, make sure that your spouse keeps theirs. It, it, again, uh, we are lied to by writers who should know better. Right? Uh, who make writing sound fun and cool, and it is it is a little bit cool, and it is totally non fun.
0: Right? Uh, now, of course, uh, both you and I can. We do actually make a living as as writers. And if yes. you have that aspiration, uh, mastering uh revisions is a big part of that. And uh, what I want to talk about uh, today, and again, this pings off an article that I have up on the Pelligrain site and that you can check out the show notes to get the link to for the steps. Um, but uh, particularly, this is about addressing the uh, mental fatigue that comes with revision, because it's just hard. It requires a lot of focus. Uh, it doesn't give you that sort of buoyant sense of the original flow state of your first draft. And I think the number one mistake that a lot of uh, writers make is they begin to despair because they are mentally tired. So the first thing I would say Mm -hmm. is, if you're mentally tired, you are doing it right. Don't (laughs) uh, be afraid of the fact that it is difficult and that you have to take a lot of breaks, and probably a lot more breaks than you would uh, during the, uh, the writing phase. So if you feel that you are in the weeds while revising, to the extent that you can possibly talk yourself out of anything, which of course is always a big order, uh, realize that there's nothing wrong about that. And in fact, if you are having a breeze while you're revising, uh, you may be a, uh, a mid-career writer who has just gotten really good and, you know, you just get to fuss around the edges. But as a beginning writer, you probably aren't and you should expect to have to get in and, and pull up your sleeves and you are going to feel tired. You're going to feel all of the uh, negative emotions that uh, you are uh, likely to be beset by because you're mentally
1: tired. And every, and every writer is different. And so you, you can't say all writers will do this. All writers will do that. And even very, very great writers. Uh, I mean, Oscar Wilde, of course, turned it into a bit, but the line, I worked very, very hard on my writing this afternoon. I added a line and then I crossed it back out. And it, he was saying that as a as a as a witticism, but it's also very much about his process he He slaved like a dog over what seems like this sort of effortless tossed off uh gem like writing of his so and other writers who you would imagine worked very, very hard to get sort of lapidary prose, just bang it out, throw it over the transom, and move on to the next job. Every writer is different
0: right you You don't get to decide whether you're a Leonard Cohen or a Bob Dylan. Like Leonard right. Cohen would take years and years and years to write any given song, and Bob Dylan, like I forget which three, but like three of his very most famous songs, he wrote in one day. He just sat, sat yeah. down and, and wrote them. So you know, if you can be Bob Dylan, be Bob Dylan. Uh,
1: but <laughs> yeah, that's right. not a helpful. Piece or Dolly Parton, who famously I think wrote Jolene and um, I will always love you on the same day. Right.
0: But but if you do find yourself in the weeds, so my uh, the next piece of advice is to, is to take breaks and. That seems like an obvious uh, thing, but it's something that you might not be willing to do if you, you know, especially if you're a beginning writer, it's not your day job. You have to steal time from your real life and fun things in order to, to work on that stuff. So, and whatever a break is for you, whether it's going off and playing a video game for a while or taking a walk or uh, uh, what have you. I've had some success. Meeting a John Dixon car novel. Yeah. I've had some success with the Pomodoro method where you just set a timer for 20 minutes. You work for 20 minutes and then you set another timer for five during the five, you don't do anything. Then you set another timer for 20. And that's, uh, I wouldn't recommend that for first stage writing, but it's, I have found it useful anyway for the revision phase. Yeah. Uh, so what can, do you do when you're, uh, uh, deep in the weeds of
1: a revision process? I mean, I'm one of those writers that gets all the being deep in the weeds out during the creation. Mostly I, um, famously, uh, I like to make cat's uh, blood run cold by talking about my one hour per paragraph, patented production method, when something that I'm writing is heavily researched, the act of research uh, slows me down enough that I'm actually revising as I'm writing. Very rarely when I'm writing like uh, a long stretch of fiction or something, do I do what you do and I and I write it and then I go back and I revise. And that's when I discovered uh, – when I first wrote my, my first long short story – I realized that there was a second kind of words besides perfect and great. There was good. (laughs) And that was awful. That was a, that was a hideous comeuppance to me. So in a way your, your research is like a a micro break that you keep taking each time. Exactly. Uh, My research is, is because I have to pay so much attention to the content that I'm also paying attention to the form. It's, it's, I, I can't really achieve a flow state. As easily with something that has to be super heavily researched, which is uh, by now most of the things I write. But when I'm writing something that either I, I was able to write over a long period, like GMing advice, which I don't have to research or uh, fiction, then you do have to go back and look at it. And that is very much a, oh, my God, the, I have the word count. Why am I doing this type thing? And uh, the way to do it is just sort of uh, what I find is sort of deeper. Like, I think you say depersonalize the job where. You're not looking at the things as you're writing. You're looking at the things and you pretend that it's either someone else's writing or that it's writing that was done by a lazy drunk past you. And you're like, okay, now I have to come and fix Ken because Ken was just, you know, goofing off when he was writing his jamming chapter. And I have to go back and make all the uh, prose good. And sometimes I'll luck into it and my flow self will actually have produced good prose for paragraphs on end. But often it will have done something where I will uh, spend, an entire section writing about why this paragraph isn't about some other thing. And it's like, well, that's helpful, but it's not actually useful. So out it goes. Or I will, you know, say the same thing four or five times, but in a non-serial way. And it maybe just helps to move stuff around and and tighten up the organization, not even so much to pick at the individual pros, but to say, these are these are Legos, let me see if I can assemble them to a better spaceship.
0: Yeah, one of the things to really look out for Uh, I guess this is a little little bit outside the the sort of mental uh, attitude formation, but still, uh, look for places where you've been spinning your wheels while you're writing, because you often will find that you've repeated the same idea a bunch of times, particularly your intro paragraph to anything is probably just you revving up to the mental state
1: that allows you to write. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've talked about the cross out the first page before.
0: Yes, and that can almost always, uh, whether it's a page or, you know, whatever proportion, you know, there's a, a chunk of stuff yeah. that you wrote while yeah. you were revving There's a
1: one-page piece. Don't cross out the whole page. Yes,
0: <laughs> and uh, also, as as uh, as you've touched on, if you possibly can, just look at it as a technical task that has nothing to do with your self-worth. Uh, again, giant tall order. So i I find it useful to think about, uh, style in terms of, uh, tricks and techniques and little sort of ways that you can nip and tuck or tailoring or whatever it is. So if you, if whatever sort of menial task that you have to do to maintain something in your life, if you can think of the, uh, heavy duty revision phase as being, uh, like, Cleaning the gunk off your grill or, you know, scrubbing under your sink or, or whatever it is. That's really what you're doing. You're cleaning up. And so, wow. uh, the difficulty of, of thinking your way through these little puzzles, your past self has left some, uh, some uh, puzzlers for you, some enigmas. You might want to think of it as solving a crossword puzzle, but uh, whatever you can do to fend off the idea of, uh, that that your critical voice that you have to develop in order to write things you gotta it's tough because you have to have that voice be very demanding and very particular without devouring you that you want to make sure that voice in your head is very kind to you and I think the a, a great way to do that is to envision what you're doing is essentially uh, a technical depersonalized task and and then of course there's things that are uh, way beyond the purview of, of this segment like uh, if you can get enough sleep. And of course, sleep is the <laughs> yes. sleep is both the friend and the enemy of the writer. Right, but uh,
1: you know, it makes a big difference. That's why cat ownership is so important? I don't know how Robin does it yes. without a cat. It's amazing.
0: And, and also, just accept that uh, your rhythms of uh, attention and focus. Uh, I think you'd be a pretty unusual person if you can achieve this same degree of focus every single day, day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know, some days for me, it's like. Climbing up a hill to get my uh, brain working enough to, to either revise or to write. And other days things come quite easily.
1: Some days are just email yeah. days.
0: And, uh, it's just the way the world yeah, is. And some, it's still a mystery to me what, uh, what makes one and what, what makes the other. But I think that's also sort of inevitable uh, to the process and uh, something you have to forgive yourself for, uh, which I guess is sort of the, uh, the overall point I'm trying to make is forgive yourself for the difficulty of revisions. It's when you think revisions are easy right. that, uh, you know, either you're Bob Dylan or perhaps it's time to walk around the block or pet your cat or what have you. And uh, we wouldn't forgive ourselves if we forgot to uh, have an ad and go to another segment.
1: The Best of Asphegelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled... And Six Guns role playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Asphagelm on
0: drive through. A melting clock is right twice a day, but you'll be right all day long if you join such Patreon backers as Pedro Garcia, Steve Hammond, Will Ferguson,
1: and Fifi Pyatt, Thomas Vallejo, and Derek Heimforth. It's
0: time, uh, once more, to creep our way up the creepity cobweb stairs where we will wave at the portrait of Madame Plavatsky. But she is glowering at us particularly hard today because neither she nor the consulting occultist, who's inside the Edwardian parlor are about to step in to normally sully themselves with politics. But uh, now we have sort of a topical reason to bring them uh, into that most sordid of arenas because Marianne Williamson... Is running for president as one of the uh, many, many democratic contenders. Uh, I don't think anyone, uh, has, uh, any belief that she will be uh, more than a footnote because we all know that America That's, would not have a weird multi-candidate primary that would then
1: result in, in, a, in the election of a bizarre TV celebrity person yes, with no would, credentials. That would never, that would never happen. That would rather. never
0: happen with uh, America's reliable, sensible voters, but still, uh, people might be wondering. Uh, who Marianne Williamson is and w- where her, uh, f- uh, thought tradition comes from and what deeper, uh, roots of various, uh, spiritual or occult or mystical movements, uh, they come from. And, uh, for her, the Urtext is something that was, uh, written by uh, someone else who's either a woman named, uh, Helen Shookman or Jesus, depending on how you want to look at it. And that's the Course mm-hmm. in Miracles. And this was a, uh, uh, Helen Shookman was a research psychologist and in the classic uh, mold of mystics she started having uh, intense visionary experiences and then one day uh, a voice that she quickly identified as Jesus which was somewhat unusual because she was uh, from a family of non-observant Jews started dictating uh, this book of, of uh, basically lifestyle advice Couched in quasi King James, uh, uh rhythms. Uh, Ken, what else can you tell us about A Course in Miracles?
1: Uh, well, the content is very sort of straightforward. What do I want to say? Watered down theosophy? That sounds mean. Uh, it is a little mean, but it's, it's very much what the American New Age is, is, uh, it's sort of theosophy crossed with Christian science. It's, uh, with a, with a big stir of, of pop Buddhism, uh, the notion that The world is an illusion that it is our emotional state that makes the world what it is, and if our emotional state can get to a place of love, then the world will be healed. And that is basically, like I say, a very watered-down version of theosophy. It is a less watered-down version of Christian science, and it is also very much an American sort of way to look at things. Is like, well, there can't be a mountain in the way. We should blow it up and put a railroad there. And it's very much the sort of, well, the world can't be fallen and awful, that'd be terrible. We should believe it's nice. Yes, And, And, you know, you can't be sick. You should will your way back to health. You should will your way back to health. And that's and that's part of it. And the notion is that you go through this course of miracles and you meditate on the concepts. uh, And this is sort of the cod Buddhism coming in. So you, uh, you you attempt to recondition your own mind to accept and be open to the positive energy of the world and then to reflect it and put it back out uh to improve everything. And you may say, "Ken, this is just codswallop." And I would say, "Yep." But um I do want to point out that crazy wine aunt Marianne, God bless her, um does quite often put her money where her mouth is. She has an AIDS charity that has fed like um, 11 million people. She's um uh, uh works very very hard on faultlessly progressive causes. She works for um, anti-hunger programs. Uh, she is not a cackling, evil Charlie Manson person, despite the fact that The Course in Miracles was written by the CIA. Uh, that has nothing to do with her. Right. That's not on her. Uh, because Helen Schuckman's co-worker boss at the time that she wrote the Course in Miracles, and the man who technically typed The Course in Miracles from her and or Jesus' dictation was a guy named Bill Thetford, and Bill Thetford was MKUltra all the way back. And uh, one of the things that uh, his program in MKUltra was for was called Human Ecology, which is about trying to figure out a way to breed a population that would be resistant to communism. And if... You believe that everything is fine. Uh, that is a pretty great way to not care about the alienation of labor from capital, I would think. Yes. And, and if <laughs> and if abstract expressionism doesn't do the trick. Right. Then by God, the new age is going to bring it right in. So let's just leave that sort of sitting. Uh, we should also point out that uh, Father Benedict Greshel, who is one of the core uh, people involved in the creation of the project. Uh, later on, said it is a false revelation and a spiritual menace. So if you wanted the Catholic view, there again it. And other people point out, uh, I think quite rightly, that Jesus may have said this, but if so, Jesus had a big change of mind from uh, the last time he talked to us in the single digits ad so we have a, a difference of opinion about jesus at the very least right. going on well
0: he's not going to uh contact phone somebody
1: up after two thousand years if he's just going to repeat the same old material you you, you know <laughs> i think jesus might actually it's like did you miss the part <laughs> where i said don't do all that shit
0: <laughs> so uh uh Marion williamson herself her story uh she um also comes from a, a jewish family uh and uh, went through a, a difficult period, uh, in her, twenties, uh, uh, culminating, uh, with a, uh, a bout of bronchitis and depression. And that's when she stumbled across the, the text of A Course in Miracles. And that, uh, gives you the, again, the mythically, uh, classical, uh, transformation experience that, uh, uh she says that the exposure to this book healed her and then allowed her to go and, uh, talk to others and and heal them and uh so she begins her public speaking career in uh in 83 and she does that in la so uh by uh, even before she writes any of her books she's deep into the celebrity culture there so uh when we uh, someday do our uh version of the 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 90s somehow the you know the era of oj and uh the uh, the Babylon nineties uh, in ninety one she uh, officiates at Elizabeth Taylor's wedding, which is at the Neverland Ranch. And uh, a year later, she writes uh, the first of her now thirteen books, uh, which is called uh, "Return to Love." And that's what uh, uh, Annette that contains the basic sort of uh, self help orientation. The you know heal yourself through thought and visualization and uh, love. Her work for HIV patients. Does indeed do everything that you uh, says it does, but also she encourages people to cure themselves by ima- imagining the angels of light within them stepping forward. And if that is healing to people, that is great. <laughs>
1: but it, it should not be replaced with a uh, course of um, uh, multivariant drug therapy in cases where you have something actually wrong with right. you. Right,
0: and of course the the <laughs> uh, the cruel side of that, you know, healing yourself through positive thinking is that, of course, uh, most people with very deadly diseases, uh, eventually do succumb to them and die, and uh, it's uh, not uh, good in my opinion to uh, give them the idea that they're failing to heal themselves or they're not visualizing uh, angels hard enough. Right. So there's a uh, New York Times profile of her, and I gotta say that uh, the most the thing that I find uh, most chilling about her is just a little moment in the interview where she's about to sit down for the interview, and then she just sort of says kind of mostly to herself, so, time for Marianne mode. <laughs> and uh oh, um, yep. I think that you again, uh, as a as a as a humble Canadian, I try not to tell Americans how to vote because none of them are asking me how to do that. But I think a uh, anyone who talks about themselves in the third person that way already before they even become president you might want to exercise. You think that's a warning
1: bell of some, some kind some do you?
0: Discretion. Um, and yeah. so th- the roots of this, of course, are, are deeply American, as we've, you know, uh, long established that the burned over district. Uh, you can sort of trace a line uh, from that forward uh, into this, and it's all uh, pretty uh, uh, consistent over time. It sort of sheds its outward skin, but uh, it's uh, a very American form of uh, spirituality and uh and it is magic. And again,
1: but, you cannot argue that the big problem with America is we have too much love, kindness and understanding. That's true. I mean, you know, whether or not you, uh, agree with the content or the source, the generalized thought of what is wrong, maybe she's not so wrong. Yes, that bit
0: is, is, uh, is unobjectionable. She also, uh, said that, uh, Trump was, uh, drawing on, uh, dark, uh occult forces and if uh you read Gary Lockman's uh, book uh, mm-hmm. Dark Star Rising uh he would agree with that uh and right. uh so that's not actually quite as weird as it uh, as it might uh,
1: sound Steve Bannon certainly would agree with oh, that yeah. although he would have probably um take issues with the adjective but he would certainly agree about the rest of it um yeah i mean th- this is the sort of Um, everyone always says they're living in the end times because it's more exciting than to say you're living in the same middle part that everyone's living in. But we are definitely at a point, whether it's because of the fracture of the, of the, uh, standard, uh, thought model in the sixties with the counterculture or whether it's the rise of everyone's individual reality post internet. But we are definitely at a point where unorthodox beliefs about the universe are not going away and they're only going to get bigger. And so someone who would have literally been laughed off the stage, not even ten years ago, is now pulling at two percent, right so this This is not a high water mark that is going to go away. I believe that uh society, again, barring one of Marianne's angels coming to fix us, is going to continue to get fragmenteder and weirder and more messed up. And I think the very least we can do is maintain a sense of humor about it. Now, Jesus did not tell me to say that, but Madame Levatsky did. Right.
0: Uh, well, and of course, uh, uh, she's far from the only candidate engaged in magical thinking. She's just the only one labeling it as such. Right, <laughs> right, yes. I mean, um, uh,
1: Beto is actually a Tulpa. People don't know that, but it's true.
0: That would explain his, uh, his difficulty as he's gone to the, uh, a bigger stage.
1: It also explains why he wants to stand up on the tables, because he floats.
0: <sighs> yes, tulpas it's just like pain uh, wise. hate uh, ground contact. Uh, well, they do. Uh, once again, uh, we started talking about something else, and we're talking about tulpas, so uh, it's, uh, it's tulpa alert. Tulpa alert. Pull the tulpa alert. Time to head on to our next segment.
1: Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing
0: in a leather cover, in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword
1: by John Scott Tyne sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated king in yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins... It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.artdream.com. The smell of popcorn
0: and the soundless whir of the digital projector tell us that we're once more in the cinema hut. And this time around, Friedrich Garnison has a question for us. He wants us to look at the grand a uh, scope of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies now that uh, we've gone from uh Iron Man all the way to the uh big uh, coda to the big end of the the this first phase technically I think they've had three phases but it's really one big thing yeah. to Spider-Man Far From Home so we put this at the end uh as we sometimes do when we're discussing uh recent films so uh if you are concerned about spoilers for the very most recent Marvel movies or the ones that for some reason you have not yet seen. Uh, uh, we will feel free to spoil them. So you might want to save this segment for, for later after you've caught up. Although I don't know how many people in our culture today who are interested in these films uh, do not see them right away because that's, I think one of the big cultural shifts that these movies represent is that they really are like comic books in a lot of ways, including the fact that no individual installment or virtually no individualist on anyway, is unsullied by ads for other parts or references mm-hmm. back to other parts, that it's all big right. one uh, overarching continuity in just as tangled a way as uh, contemporary comic books. And the later ones in the series, there's big chunks of those, just just, just like if you pick up a random uh, Marvel comic book today, that makes no sense to an uninitiated reader. And certainly Infinity War... Uh, and even Spider-Man Far From Home in a lot of like little side chunks just makes no sense. Who, who are these green people at the end? It's just going to yeah. yeah. not register at all unless you've been an extremely faithful viewer, which I think on a commercial level is a very clever way to make sh- sure that people get into movie theaters in an age when they're increasingly unwilling to show up in a physical theater uh, at the time
1: of original release. And, in fairness, um, with the exception of Thor The Dark World, none of them have been truly dire. You you go to the the movies, and by and large, you at the very least, you know, you, you go out and you say, well, that was a Marvel movie. I ate a Juju Bee. I ate a big batch of gummy bears. I'm happy. I'm full of sugar. Um, again, with the exception of Captain America The Winter Soldier, none of them have been great either, but... You know, most studios cannot make 23, uh, half decent movies in a row. So good for you, Marvel. Right.
0: Their their batting average is very high, although I, uh, I think I'm a grump on more of those uh, individual ones than you are. Particularly like, I I still feel that a a movie should be a a movie, especially if it's two and a half hours long. So, uh, Infinity War to me was a completely unsatisfying experience that uh, it is, that should have been the first act of Endgame and instead it was two and a half hours of the same beat over and over and over again.
1: Or the same two beats. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean I, I certainly have you know, similarly, I would not watch a second time Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. Uh watching Infinity War a second time was something I did to prep for endgame, not because I was there saying, Goodness, I want to see Vision and uh Scarlet Witch fight guys in Edinburgh. That's that's what I'm here for. Uh no, there was very little in the Infinity War that was actually uh the Russos did their best to sort of Change up the fights, but as you say, narratively, it's not much of a muchness. But again, at the moment, I saw them. I, with the exception of the Dark World, I left none of them going. Well, that was that. That was terrible. That was an awful thing. And again, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two came a little bit close to me for for being that. But again, Kurt Russell, you can't fight Kurt Russell. He's darling. <laughs>
0: yeah see even when you have to fight Kurt Russell, it's uh, yeah
1: you can't fight Kurt Russell too, too you's always really duty
0: bound so and and in all all sorts of other ways uh, these films really are the the triumph of comic book culture being introduced into cinema where previously there were so many attempts to make very cinematic movies featuring comic book characters. There's so much that this does that is straight out of the comic book playbook, including uh you know the idea of the uh big. A crossover event that draws everything else in uh, to the point where Spider-Man Far From Home feels very much like an issue of the regular comic trying to get back to its original plot lines after having been completely right, yeah. disrupted by the big crossover event. Um, and uh, again, that makes it, as a standalone thing, uh, somewhat misshapen, uh, even though I think they actually do a pretty darn good job of yeah. uh, taking that stuff and making it part of its own individual movie arc for Peter Parker, it's still, uh, you know, how how much, you know, how many of those other movies do you have to really get and care about in order to really get the emotional key of that movie? That's uh, something that, you know, even Star Wars, uh, which, you know, has a cliffhanger at the end of its second of its first it's trilogy, second, right. uh, which the, uh, also was sort of unprecedented at the time in terms of, you know, turning movies into television, uh that this really is uh you know big screen television where there's one or two episodes of uh the show every uh every year and you have to go out to a theater to see them and the episodes are sort of an anthology but they also require you to to know everything uh about everything that has gone before so it certainly changed expectations of narrative and the self-containedness of of things to a degree that even other consciously serialized uh things like the Harry Potter series uh ha- have done because that's uh you know much more a single arc that is drawn out over the course of many films whereas uh this is a whole bunch of quasi separate narratives that uh bump up and and into each other and uh, expect you to uh, follow along, or at least to infer what it is that's that's going on on screen.
1: And now the the vision of that, and I I think we have gotten as deep into this segment as we possibly can without saying the name of the guy who's who was who the reason it worked is Kevin Feige, who is now Marvel Studio chief, and at the time uh, it was launched was second in command at Marvel Studios, and got his job, by the way, in Hollywood as being the guy who could teach meg ryan to use email for you got mail so in in another world a different nerd was hired to teach meg ryan to use email and uh flamed out on the x-men movies and marvel studios was garbage from the jump this is very much a great man theory and this is where i have a question because i read it somewhere i forget i wish i could give credit but someone said kevin feige is just val luton again right that The vision of the Marvel movies, with one or two exceptions, Winter Soldier and, to a a slightly lesser extent, Black Panther, maybe Doctor Strange, they all come out of this same very, I don't want to say cookie cutter, but very standardized Marvel aesthetic. And it, it's very much like Val Luton would impose right. an aesthetic on a bunch of different directors. Do you think that that is a fair comparison? And
0: Doctor Strange, I think, is totally in that aesthetic. It's it's a reskin of Iron Man. So. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that, uh, and Luton imposes, uh, I think, even more of a mood on his films, and and I think that's also an interesting analogy in that their uh, aesthetics. Uh, both of them sort of leached out and affected other films as well. And so uh, all sorts of other blockbuster films feel like Kevin Feige films, even though he didn't have anything to do with them, just as other Republic uh, films during the Val Luton era began to take on sort of his haunted quality, even when they're not a Val Luton subject matter per se. So like a love triangle noir directed by Jean Renoir off uh, in Hollywood during the, the war has a weird little Val Luton feeling in the middle and that, you know, now people expect, for example, the, the post credit sequence, uh, is a, an example of a, uh, how often do new structural tropes come along? Now there've been sort of bond right, films man. that have kind of had little tags at the end like that,
1: but the, Things where there's now you know, some of them are jokes. Well, the Bond film just tells you the the name of the new movie. That was what it yeah. used to be. You'd sit there through the whole credits and your big reward was not Samuel L. Jackson telling Bond about Blofeld, but uh James Bond will return in this time. It won't be as disappointing, <laughs> we promise. <laughs> And so,
0: you know, that that's a whole new structural thing and people now, you know, Godzilla now has post yep. or I guess it was the King Kong movie had a post teaser thing. Well, that's
1: because uh they're very much attempting to do the same thing with the Monsterverse that uh Marvel and Figa pioneered with the MCU is to create and that this was a big thing. I mean, every studio was trying to build their own um uh, uh cinematic universe and of course, Universal uh, crashed and burned, uh, and blew up the whole concept trying to reboot their monster verse a million times. Warner Brothers, of course, had its own uh, famous choke and stops with uh, the DC expanded universe. Um, but that, this is all again, people looking at FIGA taking movies that are not direct sequels, but are a braided narrative and saying, well, if we could do that, we would be the kings of the world.
0: And it uh, is definitely a, a retreat to a producer-driven vision, uh, producer and IP-driven, but you, uh, as you suggest, you need both, right? That they, mm-hmm. uh, You can have all the cool universal monsters, but if you can't uh, create a platform that people feel they have to go back to each time, right? They, they're not just mm-hmm. interested in, you know, oh, this has an Easter egg that connects up to this, but... The emotional connections between the characters uh, are what thread those movies together. So that because you care about Iron Man, because you saw him not only in the Iron Man movies, but also in the Avengers and also in a Captain America movie, and then he shows up in the Spider-Man, uh, and that it is your uh, affections for the people who carry through all these narratives that is, uh I think, unique to uh, Marvel and that it was the thing that everybody else uh, uh, missed. Now, do you know if Feige did the casting,
1: the top-level casting for all these movies?
0: He had to have been a, a huge force in that because right. certainly part of their whole strategy was to get people who could be uh, on the cusp of stardom or could seem like stars within the context of those movies and then
1: not pay them very much. Right, and build them into being operatic stars over time. Yes.
0: Uh, now, uh, famously, a couple of them ma- then managed to go back and, and leveraged into big
1: movie star paychecks. <laughs> Robert Downey Jr., we salute you. Yes.
0: Um, and uh, But it's, it's really also quite funny the uh, way that the idea of being cast in movies and what movies you're in has changed as a result of these films. So they just sign the actors to be in X number of films um, in which they – are contractually obligated to be in, but don't necessarily know. So it's
1: like the old studio system,
0: right? Even more so though, because, you know, Betty Davis knew what film she was in on Netflix. There's a a cooking show called the chef show, which is John Favreau and uh, Roy Choi, the uh, chef uh, who taught him how to cook for his movie chef. And they uh, follow up on not only the recipes that were made in that show, but he draws in his various celebrity friends to show up as well. And so uh, at one point they're cooking with Gwyneth Paltrow and uh, John Favreau says, oh, remember when we were in this first Spider-Man movie and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow? what? Was, I was in Spider-Man? <laughs> and he's like, I assure you. <laughs> Gwyn, you were in Spider-Man. So not only are you uh, uh set to be in X number of films but you may not notice having been in certain films and they they right. mocap you and your an-, an animated version of you based on your actual movements might show up in a film mm-hmm. you might not have ever shot anything for. So uh it's sort of a a mega return to the studio system in which the actors are even less important. Uh, and it's about the properties and,
1: and in, in this case, the vision of the, uh, filmmaker. So. Now you say the actors are less important, but I think that is one of the real triumphs that you have to give them is of the main roles. There's not a bad casting job, I would say. I mean, you, you, you have to go pretty far down and even Hawkeye. I mean, yeah, Jeremy Renner, but again, you're casting someone to play a fifth wheel. No one wants. So Jeremy Renner, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, uh, whenever there's been sort of someone, they have the opposite uh, problem sometimes of casting someone and then, uh, criminally underusing them, uh, like Natalie Portman. But right. yeah, there's no, <laughs> there's no dud, uh, who's, who's, who's yet been cast in any of the uh, major roles. And that's a, another big achievement. Uh, whether they then get to go on and parlay that into, uh, stardom that makes them a box office draw that, you know, the classic definition of a star is someone who actually Gets people to go to their movies because they are right. in it.
1: someone who can open a yeah. film. Yeah,
0: so uh, certainly it's hard to point to uh, other vehicles uh, that have drawn in other uh, you know that then worked essentially entirely on the star power of the actor the way that films did in the uh, 80s and 90s. So Chris Pratt, for example, uh, when he's in another big tentpole movie that does well, but whether uh the the presence of Chris Pratt in something else uh you know uh, makes him as big a star as he is when he's playing Star Lord is is another uh question. Right.
1: And that's the and that's the same thing with uh, Fast and the Furious. Vin Diesel, everyone can't get enough of Vin Diesel as Toretto. <laughs> Except for all of but, his but, cast members. <laughs> but but Neil, yeah, this is the beautiful and magical world. Um uh, and again Cast Vin Diesel as a guy who just says Groot all the yeah. time. There. That's, that's great fine. casting. He's in that's in room by himself. But no one no one cared about XXX or any other Vin Diesel property. They, they just were like, "Get back in the car, yeah. man." That's what we I want. I like to pitch back in the car would be a second one, but uh And that's another example where... But that know, was when he was unknown. People just liked Pitch Black because the the high concept was so great. I mean, he was great too, but Riddick made no money.
0: And, and now there's there's a Fast and Furious uh, expanded
1: universe where they're yes. spinning up. although cleverly they've cast the two pre-established big stars that they brought into the yeah. Fast and Furious, right? Dwayne the Rock Johnson did not need the Fast and the Furious to become... Uh, a, a box office opener, yes. nor did Jason Statham to a slightly lesser degree.
0: Um, yeah, that's another interesting thing where they're, you know, just drawing, uh, uh, people back in and it's going to be interesting to, you know, and, and now it, it is also so commonplace for, uh, giant actors to play superheroes that it's, um, mm. a, a sign of distinction that you are uninterested in that. Like John Hamm, it's like, nope, not for me. That's that, you know, that's pretty rare. Eventually all of the big stars are, are going to be in, uh, one thing or another, you know, the rock has his right. uh, DC universe part lined up and, and so forth. So I guess we should start winding to a, a conclusion. And I guess my conclusion would be that this is, is an unprecedented sea change for the way that movies are presented and what we expect from them in terms of their presentation and how complete they are. And, uh, you know, that we can then enjoy, you know, the in jokes at the end of a, Spider-Man that make us feel clever because we saw uh, Captain Marvel. Um, but also something that we're not yet seeing become a trend outside of itself. Even Star Wars, even the Star Wars franchise, which it looked like they very consciously were looking to replicate the Marvel model. They couldn't figure out how to do that. And so they've canceled a bunch of their uh, planned things because they did a, made a different sort of mistake going, what people really want are prequel films Mm -hmm. explaining origin they want to story Obi Wan. we didn't need for all these beloved characters. So there have been many people who have looked at that model and decided uh, we need to replicate that. But so far, uh, it's just the one thing.
1: And, and when you look at the fact that Star Wars couldn't do it and DC mostly couldn't do it, I don't want to say couldn't do it, but mostly couldn't do it, those would have been, if you were a betting man, you would have said, well, this is all well and good, but by God, way more people care about Superman and Batman than care about Iron Man. Um, way more people care about Star Wars than care about Marvel. Surely this will dwarf the the Marvel footprint. Now that Kevin Feige has shown everyone how to do it, the big boys will shove him aside and go do a really successful one, and that hasn't happened. uh, My theory is that it really is down to, if you don't have Kevin Feige in that chair, this doesn't work. Well, I I think that if
0: anyone understood what he was doing, they could replicate it, but they haven't really looked at what he's doing. They've uh, concluded, right. oh, you need a big CGI fight at the beginning and people like continuing characters and little Easter eggs. But, you know, as I suggested earlier, it is about creating an emotional bond with these characters uh, that you keep seeing again in different contexts and you care about what happens mm-hmm. to them to the point where you need to come up and see what's going on.
1: And this and this should not be news to people who've made movies because, of course, that's the whole reason you made a million Thin Man movies.
0: Right, but you didn't right? have the... the st- Thin Man cinematic universe where, you know, no, Charlie Chan Charlie shows up and you, and you really Moto care about all... them and you, you get the right, yeah. fan service of
1: having them interact. But but the, but the notion that a character, meaning a part and a star, is the draw, you, you, I'm, I'm amazed that it, is, that it is taking this long for people to figure right, that because out. it's Let's more than it just a way.
0: series. It's more than just Harry Potter. It is about mm-hmm. standalone things that don't stand alone because they're connected to... Uh, recurring characters who keep popping up who we care about.
1: Because you've met someone you love just as much in their own film, and now he's in this film, and that makes you feel more than twice yes, as and, good.
0: And now the core emotional, uh, emotional relationship in this movie is between Iron Man and Peter Parker. And using the right. affection that you've created for the already introduced characters to bring in uh, the other characters and in some cases to eliminate the need for the stupid origin story movie by having a character previewed in one movie and then debuted in, in the next one, but we already know who they mm-hmm. are. So we don't need the, uh, clunky, uh, already, uh, tired, uh, arc. So, you know, that Black Panther is as good as it is because it didn't introduce Black Panther
1: and right. that, that, that's certainly unprecedented. You got to meet him in, uh, Winter Soldier. Yeah. Or Civil War, rather. And Black Panther, though, of course, does still get an origin story into Black Panther, and that's one of the parts that if the movie had not been designed by Hannah Beechler, and had been designed by the same Xerox that Marvel puts on all the other movies, the origin story segment of Black Panther, where he, you know, goes and goes to the purple flowers, and we have that moment, that would have just been, that would have stopped the movie dead, but because it's beautiful and fun and interesting in a way we haven't seen, and that I think is the only I would say overarching weakness of this is that, they are pretty boring, uh, movies just to look at and to, uh, aside from, oh, look, he's punching that guy, but you, you see a Hannah Beachler come on or, uh, to a slightly lesser extent, uh, whoever production designed Winter Soldier and decided to film it like, um, uh, a, a 1970s black and white film, except in color. Those movies look like a thing and the other movies kind of don't look like a thing. And that's right. And, and the fight choreography certainly is very uneven between the different films. And oh some yeah. Of them and again, Black Panther is. is a movie where if they'd had a good fight choreographer, that that movie would have gotten much better.
0: Um, Well, I I promised uh, several minutes ago that we were wrapping up. Uh, So, uh, like I said, if you are listening to this on the day it drops, we are at Gen Con, and maybe you are too. Um, The next episode next week will be the one that we record in our hotel room together before Gen Con, and then the week after that, uh, Gen, Gen Con will have occurred in our timeline. And, uh, it will be, have been over for a while by the time you get our, uh, croaky voiced, uh, recap episode of, uh, Gen Con. I think there's some, uh, it might be a different show this year, so we'll see. But anyway, uh, stick with us over the next few weeks and, uh, you will go on, on that journey on a slight delay from us. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors!
1: Atlas Games! Pelgrane Press! Ask the Gown, Arc Dream! Dork Tower! And Pro Fantasy Software! Music as always is by James Semple! Audio editing by Rob Borges! Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash can and Robin.
0: Keep this podcast from being revised out of existence alongside such Patreon backers as... David Mascari. Jeremy French. Kevin J. Maroney. Noel Warford. And Dave Choate. festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest design, Polyp Fiction. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time and once again we will talk about stuff.